Hope you're able to have good times with family and friends, but just want to, before we begin, jump in the sermon, just take a moment to reflect and remember the men and women who gave their lives so that we could worship freely in a place like this. It is a great sacrifice and one that that we celebrate this Memorial Day. Uh, Thanks for spending Memorial Day with us here at Friendship. Well, my name is Nathan Miller. I'm a pastor here at Friendship, and I get the privilege of completing the series that we've been in called Open Your Eyes. And I kind of selfishly, I think the series was named after the passage we get a look at today. So I know uh, others of you... uh, may have uh, liked the other passages, but this is the best one, and, and it's not a competition. I just really like this passage. It's in Mark 8. would invite you to grab a Bible and turn to Mark 8. It is a uh, really, really uh, interesting passage, but one that connects to last week. If you were here last week, uh, at the end of the sermon, Pastor Matt talked about an episode of the disciples in the boat. And that actually is important for us as we look at our passage for today. If you remember, on the boat, they had a bunch of guys, one loaf of bread, and they were blind to Jesus' power and to the spiritual lesson Jesus was trying to teach them. The power that they couldn't see was they were looking around the boat and they're like, man, the brother-to-bread ratio is just way off on this boat, and I don't see a Panera anywhere in sight. Like, what are we going to do? And Jesus is smacking his head like, are you kidding me? I just fed 5,000 people with how many loaves? 4,000 with how many loaves? Like, you, you just don't see my power yet, do you? And then he, he proceeds to give them a spiritual lesson about leaven, kind of comparing it to sin. Uh, beware this kind of sin, whether it's a, a spiritual sin of religiosity of the Pharisees or worldly, fleshly sins of Herod, beware, because that little bit of leaven will take over and completely change the dough. And they're still, after this spiritual lesson, they're still like, yeah, so about my one loaf. And and if you remember in verse 18 of Mark 8, Jesus responds to the disciples' foolish conversation, says, saying, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Do you not yet understand? Verse 21. The disciple blindness is what Mark the gospel writer wants his readers thinking about when we enter our passage for today. So, turn with me to verse 22. Mark 8, starting in verse 22. And we're going to see that Jesus opens eyes in two touches. It starts in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Who here wears glasses? Does anyone in the house wear glasses? 
broaden it or contacts. Okay, I'm wearing contacts right now. So these aren't my first pair of glasses. These are actually 3D glasses from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy that Marie and I watched last night. But, but do you remember what it was like when you first put on glasses, for those of you who had them? I was in elementary school. I was a boy. Yes, I, yeah, I was a boy in elementary school. And that's not relevant to the story, but I, I remember leaving the doctor's office. It was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. But when I left the doctor's office with my glasses on, there were trees in the parking lot. They had branches. I had never seen branches before. I was like, there's so many of them. Like, I, I had just seen, you know, that's a tree. It's like, that's, that's a tree. And there are branches. When uh, they had the screening, they're like, can you read the, the, the top of the chart, the big one? And I'm like, where's the wall? Like, I could not see at all. And so when I could finally see with, with the right lenses, man, it's incredible, right? And Jesus, in this passage, does something incredible. He leads him out of the village, spits in his eyes, touches him, and asks, do you see anything? The man's vision partially healed, but still blurry, seeing tree people. But with that second touch, he saw everything clearly. Notice the two touches. Did Jesus lack power to be able to heal the blind man in one touch? Was it a lack of, like, what's with the two touches? A reminder about bread in a boat. Does he lack power? No, no. If he can feed thousands of people with one loaf, he can heal a guy with one touch, right? It's not about his lack of power, but rather he wanted his disciples to see something in this two-stage healing. Jesus not only has the power fully to heal the blind man, which he does, we see, but he also wants to teach a spiritual lesson through this miracle. We may see in part, but Jesus wants to see us to see in full. Imagine if the blind man had said, in verse 24, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. I'm good with that. Thanks, Jesus. See ya. And then he goes home. I don't mind if the world is full of groots walking around. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm totally cool with that. Sorry. It was a good, it was a good movie. Um, close. No, no. What, what does he do? He lingers. He stays. It would be crazy for him to do that. Instead, he waits on Jesus. He leans in for a second touch. And the only sight he had ever seen up to this point was a gift, but it wasn't complete. It wasn't in full. He wanted more, and Jesus delivered. And I, I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who this resonates a little bit in your life. You have a Jesus moment you can remember. Oh, yeah. Jesus touched me at camp that one time. Or, man, I, I remember hearing a message a couple years ago that, yeah, Jesus showed up in a powerful way and touched, touched me then. But for whatever reason, you, you've lost some of that vision. You, you don't seem to see him as clearly anymore. You remember things starting to come into focus, but then... Maybe you got distracted, maybe you lost hope, started doing things on your own apart from Jesus. But Jesus wants to finish the work he started 
in you and offers you a second touch this morning. There is more of Jesus that he wants you to see. And my prayer for you this morning is if you'd lean in and wait on him today, may he open your eyes to see him clearly. The story continues. Jesus, with his disciples, journey. So right now, they're in Bethsaida, which is like the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, but they go north to Caesarea Philippi, the villages which are about 20-odd miles straight north of the Sea of Galilee, like the northern region. And it's about the same distance from Prior Lake to Minneapolis. So it's a decent commute, especially if you're walking it, right? And Jesus maximizes this journey by engaging them in spiritual conversation. Notice the conversation, starting in verse 27. Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, while they were journeying, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Well, you know, others actually say one of the prophets. Oh, okay, interesting. And he asked them, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. When I was in grad school, I worked for a mentor who would, uh, part of the job was, um, was traveling a lot because he would represent um, the school that we worked at in churches all, all over. And so I remember driving to Omaha. We did a seminar in Omaha and then he preached in Cheyenne, Wyoming we logged many, many miles together as part of that, I was kind of his gopher, part of that, that, that season of life. And it struck me that this mentor understood what Jesus understood so well. Every moment matters. And you can, in your journey, accomplish a lot of strategic things. Um, I grew so much through the strategic conversations that he had with me during that time. And while worth noting, uh, this isn't the main part point of, the, of this text. But I, I just have to ask, practically, if Jesus can redeem his travel time, what about us? Do, are we intentional about the time that we spend? Even the throwaway time about getting from one place to the other. I know Many of you had really rich spiritual conversations on your drive-in this morning. I'm sure you kind of primed the spiritual pump, because that's certainly what Marie and I do every time we drive into church with our little ones. I, I like to have a family devotional time where I, I ask the kids just to prepare their hearts, you know. Uh, it's not practical, always. It's hard. It's difficult. But if we're intentional, what could God choose to do with the time that we give him? How might you travel differently this week? As you run errands with your kids in the car, could you maybe just ask certain questions to draw out their heart? When you travel this summer, how strategically could you plan to use your travel time? What do you want to learn about your family's heart, about their understanding of Jesus? How could you ask questions to help your family or your friends who are in the car with you, maybe you commute, see Jesus more clearly? Notice the, the masterful questions he asks. He, he starts broad, hey, who do people say that I am? Then he gets really personal. Yeah, but who do you say that I am? Jesus was an expert at using those moments strategically uh, for the shaping of the disciples' heart and mind. 
Well, what, what is the main point? It's not about your commuting strategy as much as this. The main point is that Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, says, rightly, Jesus is, verse 29, the Christ or the Messiah. So Christ translated is really just uh, Messiah in Hebrew. It means anointed one. And we see, finally, a return to the very opening verse of the gospel. Mark 1.1, the gospel of Jesus Messiah, the Son of God. We opened the, the, the book with this image of Jesus as a Messiah or an anointed one that finally, Jesus has been doing all these things to declare the, the, the Messiah that he is, but finally someone speaks it in Peter, here in chapter 8, verse 29. Finally, we see it. And Jesus responds in a very strange way. He, he's like, hey guys, yes, grab your phones, let's take some selfies, and don't forget to tag, hashtag Christ, hashtag Messiah, hashtag the anointed one is here, and make sure to post it. Let's, let's spread this thing. Let's go viral. It's here. It's, it's happening, right? That's how he responds. Wrong. How does he, how does he respond? Shh. Don't tell anybody. What does it say? It says, tell no one. He says to the disciples, and even a few verses earlier, remember the blind man? Don't even enter the village. We don't want, uh, don't, don't, don't spread this news. And you got to ask yourself, why, why would Jesus not want to like let people know? The disciples saw Jesus in part, but not in full. They understood him rightly, but not completely. There were certain aspects about Jesus that were still blurry to them and could ruin Jesus' plans if announced prematurely. This is where we see Mark's masterful storytelling at work. When we connect the disciples on the boat last week, the healing of the blind man story, and then this travel discussion with Jesus and the disciples, we start to see that Mark is paralleling the blind man with the disciples. Like the blind man, the disciples needed a few more touches from Jesus to see him clearly. They needed a few more touches to see him clearly. And so they were, he, he didn't want them to be premature in their announcement because they didn't see things as clear as they needed to yet. I don't know what this is called, but it's a game. And I work with youth, and we play this in youth groups sometimes. I think it's called Reveal the Hidden Picture. That's what I'm calling it this morning. I think it's on, on uh, game shows or something. Correct me, whatever the name of this game is, but we're going to play it. There's an image, and it's partially revealed. So right now, who, who can tell me what, what you're seeing? Any guesses what this is? A starry night. That's a good, a good guess. What? Google Maps. Okay. Someone first hour said it's a dog. It's like, no. Any guesses? Okay. <clears throat> it's hard to tell what it is, right? Why? Because we can't fully see what it is yet. But with another clue, there we go. Now, now we see clearly what this is, right? That was a less helpful tile. Let's try this one. I think I heard it. Yes, the winner. You get a candy bar from the canteen. Good job. All right, it's a dolphin. 
well done. Okay, you guys are pretty good with animals. Let's, let's try it with humans. All right, here we go. I already gave, gave you the clue. It's a human. That's actually some trees, but okay. Who could this be? Who could this be? Someone standing there? Oh, oh, you guys, you guys, unmistakable, unmistakable beauty. All right. So these are easy to see when you can see the full picture, right? But so often, when you can't see, you're guessing. And you can maybe say with confidence you know what it is, but it wasn't Google Maps, it was a dolphin. And until we see enough to make us know what it actually is, it can be a conundrum. So, the disciples in our passage have a picture of Jesus as Messiah. It's true, but it's incomplete. The picture of Jesus is incomplete. And we know this because they have a view of a Messiah figure that was very common in Jewish understanding of that day. Well, what kind of view, what kind of picture did they have of Jesus the Messiah? Three points. The typical Jewish understanding of this, this title, Messiah or Anointed One, was a military conqueror who would free the Jews from foreign domination. Another aspect of this Messiah was that it was a king who would establish and protect a kingdom for Israel to live in peace. And finally, a final anointed one would deliver Jerusalem from Gentiles, gather the faithful from dispersion, because the Jews were scattered, and rule in justice and glory. If you were to poll the typical Jew during this time frame and said, hey, what does the Messiah look like? These are the kinds of things they would say. This is the kind of thinking in the writing of that day. In fact, I didn't, you probably didn't know we'd be looking at Psalms of Solomon this morning, but look at this little excerpt. You can kind of get, this is an extra biblical, it's not in the Bible, but it was written in the first or second century, and it, it depicts this common view of the Messiah. O Lord, raise up their king, son of David, that he may reign over Israel thy servant. Gird him with strength that he may shatter unrighteous rulers, that he may purge Jerusalem from nations that trample her down to destruction. He shall gather together a holy people whom he shall lead in righteousness. This was the vision, this was the picture the disciples, and certainly Peter, had of what a Messiah was. It was true in part, but not in full. So the disciples saw a king, and they saw a warrior in the Messiah. But Jesus wanted them to see something different. They wanted him to see something different. Look in verse 31. What does Jesus want his disciples to see? Look in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Whoa, whoa. I thought he's the one doing the killing. He's the warrior with the sword. No, 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 no. He, I, Jesus says, I'm going to be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting 
your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus' teaching of his own suffering was so unexpected and so jarring for Peter, he was willing to correct and rebuke Jesus in that moment. Peter failed to see the full picture of Jesus' agenda and asserted his will over against Jesus's. Was Jesus calling Peter Satan? Was he calling Peter Satan? No. Notice what he, what he calls satanic. It's his thinking. Jesus called Peter's thinking satanic because it was based off an incomplete picture of Jesus. It only saw part of the Messiah image and missed the crucial details that Jesus would suffer in his plan of redemption. It was a partial truth, but not the full truth. And he jumped over that partial truth to try to correct it, missing the full truth Jesus wanted to show him. The uh, theologian, uh, J.I. Packer, he's passed away, really wise man, once said, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. We may know in part and act with authority, and we might be missing important details. So, returning to the image of a reveal the hidden picture, what did Peter and the disciples see as the picture of the Messiah? They saw he was a king, based off that quote we read earlier from the Psalms of Solomon, and that he was a a warrior who would come with a sword and rescue those poor Israelites. But what did they miss? What did Peter miss? They missed that suffering was a part of the plan and that Jesus would serve to the uttermost. He would wash their feet. Do you remember Peter getting ticked at him washing the feet later on? Why? Because it's also not part of his picture. Jesus had things that he wanted to do, his will, his agenda, his will and ways that Peter did not see yet. And so he was upset that Peter would rush to correct him to say, you don't fully see. Now, can I confess something to you as I was reading this passage? I, when I first read it, I kind of felt like Jesus was being a little too harsh. I felt bad for Peter. I felt he was being a little unfair on poor Peter. Like, how can you fault the guy if all you can see because of the things you've read is this? That's still partly true, right? Like, Jesus, back off, man. You're just a little coming in hot. Like, it's, this is still true about him. Why, why was Peter getting such a harsh, raked over the coals by, by Jesus? And then I thought similarly to me, like, what about me and, or you? Does God judge us when we can't see him fully? When our picture of Jesus has boxes still covering it of his person or his plan, should we be faulted for our ignorance? I was getting kind of worked up this week. I was like, man, what? Jesus, you're a little poor Peter. But then, as God loves to do, he opened my eyes to an important truth. And it's this, even an incomplete picture of Jesus demands a complete surrender to Jesus. 
Even an incomplete picture of Jesus demands a complete surrender to Jesus. We don't have to see all the details to trust Jesus completely. He's proven himself. He has power. We've seen over and over again. He has love. He has care. Jesus reveals himself and his plans to us at a pace and design of his own choosing. Even with our partial pictures, which all of us have, partial, it's not completely clear, there's elements we don't see, even with our partial pictures of Jesus, he demands total commitment to his will and ways. Jesus doesn't promise we will always see the full picture, but he does demand full allegiance. Jesus didn't fault Peter for missing a Messiah detail. Jesus faults Peter for asserting Peter's own will and ideas, his thinking or mindset, over against Jesus's. What made Peter's thinking satanic? It was that Peter's partial picture of Jesus led to a partial commitment to Jesus' plan. In other words, it was, it was part Jesus. Yep, yeah, yeah, I, I like what you're doing, but it's also part Peter, Peter's will and ways, which means he would correct Jesus. You're, you're off on a couple things. Let me, let me correct you. But to follow Jesus, it must be 100% Jesus' will and ways. 100%. We must wait on Jesus Humbly look to Jesus and submit our lives fully to Jesus and his vision for our life and not our own. And that vision involves things at time that make us uncomfortable, like suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 3 summarizes it beautifully. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Messiah or in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Will be persecuted. And Jesus said, okay, I've got a, a couple verses left. I've got to give you a quick crash course on discipleship. And so he does, starting in verse 34. Look at your Bibles. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The image of someone carrying a cross would have been very familiar to the the Jews at that time. And what did it picture? A kind of punishment that was complete and total. It wasn't a hand slap sort of punishment. It was a complete punishment. You didn't come back from the cross, right? It was synonymous with a complete, life-yielding surrender. 
you handed your life over completely to the one who was taking it with that kind of punishment. That is the image. It's grim, but it's the apt image Jesus calls every one of his followers to. If we lose our life by handing it over completely to Jesus and his gospel purposes, he promises to save it. He is telling Peter, he's telling the disciples, he's telling everyone who's listening, if you want to follow me, I don't share my agenda with anyone. In other words, well, 8% your plan, I'm bad at math, the other percent, your plan, my plan. I'm good with numbers, I am. We're working on the budget, Tracy. I'll get it, I'll get it to you this week. 100%, 100% surrender. And when he sniffs out and sees very clearly Peter, Peter gets him somewhat, but he is asserting his will over Jesus's by rebuking him in that moment. Jesus is like, I don't think it was all about anger at Peter. I think maybe even Jesus himself in that moment as fully human may have been tempted to agree with Peter. Yeah, I don't want this suffering. We remember later he, he pleads with Jesus, let the cup pass, let the cup pass, but not my will. Jesus himself is wrestling with 100% submission to his father, and he doesn't want any voices of dissent veering him off course. And he hears in Peter, you're not 100% with God on this. Get behind me. That's That's satanic. That is a temptation to me and my pursuit of the cross. I am going to go all the way, giving everything for God, his plan, his will, his redemption. If we are too embarrassed or ashamed by Jesus, like Peter was of Jesus' focus on suffering, and we remain fixed on our will and our ways in life, it will be too late when Jesus returns. Verse 38 warns us. We must not be ashamed. Even when we don't see things clearly, God doesn't ask us to see things clearly. He gifts us clarity, but he does ask us for submission. He does ask us for surrender, total surrender. So as we end this morning, I want to just offer three words of application, three reflective words that bring this passage into focus, Lord willing, The first is this, to look. He asked, Jesus asked, do you see anything? Who do you say that I am? Are you looking to Jesus? Asking him to open your eyes, to remove whatever is blurring your vision of him. Some of those tiles need to be removed so you can see him more clearly. Look, keep looking to Jesus until he opens your eyes. Lean Lean into Jesus for another touch. You remember when Jesus laid his hands on him again? He saw everything clearly. In what way do you need to posture yourself today and this week so that you can be close enough and ready enough for Jesus to touch you again, to heal you, open your eyes, and lastly, 
lose. Lose your life for the gospel, for Jesus. Offer your life daily to the call and cost of following Jesus completely. Many use this passage. It's a familiar passage. And they're like, oh yeah, take up your cross. Uh, it's sacrificial. That means spiritually we need to like give God some of our life. Like Sundays, let's, let's give our Sundays to Jesus. Jesus is like, no, no, no. Give your whole calendar to me. Oh, it's sacrificial. I need to like give up certain elements to focus on Jesus. Maybe during certain times of the year I'll give up red meat. Or maybe I'll give up video games. Maybe I'll, no. Give up everything. The picture of someone carrying a cross wasn't someone giving up part, but giving up their very life, everything. And so as you begin your day, to say, Lord, how can I daily pick up this cross? How can I daily lose my life for your sake and for the gospel so that I can gain it? I want to transition our time now to such an apt exercise. God said, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Never forget the sacrifice that I made. And as we transition into this time of communion, what an opportunity to reflect. Are we fully surrendered? Do we love Jesus in the same way he loved us? Namely, to death. Do we love him to death? He loved us to death, and the, the elements remind us of that. We practice open communion here at Friendship. would encourage you, as this next song plays, to make your way to any one of the four corners to get the elements. Return to your seat, and after this song, I'll lead us in a time of, of taking those elements together.